welcome to the Launch University podcast, turning good intentions into reality in your career, business, and life. Here's your host, David Farmer. Hello, Launch University listeners. This is David Farmer, and I am really excited about the interview about to do. This one is going to be uh, unique. I and I know I'm going to learn a bunch, and I think you will too. I'm really excited to have Dr. Jerome Libba uh, with me today. Jerome. It's such a pleasure. I appreciate it. And you pronounced the name perfect. It was awesome. Okay. He'll tell the story about why that's not as easy as it, as it might seem. But uh, Jerome and I met at a great event. Oh, a month and a half ago, I would say. Yes, sir. Uh, the groundbreaking for the new plywood space That's in Atlanta. Right. And some of you will reference plywood from time to time. And our good friend Jeff Schinnebarger, who is the founder and leader of that group. And as they continue to grow, they help uh, social entrepreneurs, principally in Atlanta, but uh, in other places as well. They, they're they starting to outgrow their space. Absolutely. And um, they're going to be moving into some new space. In fact, I understand they've uh, begun construction of this uh, build out of this new space but we had a little groundbreaking there and so Jerome and I got to meet there and I said we gotta get we gotta have a talk we gotta have an interview so that's what we're doing today <laughs> absolutely so we're gonna get started uh, uh Jerome has a fascinating story he presently leads a clinic called Thrive Neuro he's got a business Thrive Neuro Health he's a clinician he creates content as well um and I want him to say just a word about that and then Jerome we got to go back in time you got to tell some of your story then we'll come back to Thrive Neuro sure and unpack that in a lot more detail is that cool that sounds great I all right it. tell us what what is Thrive Neuro yeah so Thrive Neuro Health is a clinic that's based in East Atlanta Village uh for anybody who knows a good friend Aaron Eddie it used to be the previous So Worth Loving Space so I took that over uh, in terms of a landmark, but Aaron's um, also one of our early podcast guests. Yeah, so a shout out to Aaron. Yeah, big shout out to Aaron. Um, and what it is is I'm the only board certified functional neurologist in Atlanta, uh, which essentially means that I take on complex unresolved cases and work on them without drugs or surgery. Uh, so if it's a child with nonverbal autism, a concussion, stroke, brain injury, movement disorder, essentially if it's a complex case that no one's really sure what to do, or it's at what's called maximum clinical benefit and people want to see is there actually something more that we can do with that and then I take on those cases and and try to help folks uh, achieve a higher level of function and uh, and get a little bit better in those spaces without drugs or surgery and so one of the things I, I, I'm it's one of the reasons I'm excited about this I feel like um, for folks that are leading um, they're starting something there's a lot of stress in their life uh, there's a lot to this uh, overall mental health that um, um, we, we just need to lean into because Absolutely. if it's if there's a challenge there, it's going to become stressed and, and more pronounced when you're out there trying to uh, get something going or you're in a position of leadership. Is that fair? It is fair, and you know my I, I understand this from both sides of the equation as a as a patient and also a clinical professional um, because my undergrad is in digital animation and film, and I used to do music full time. I never had the intention of going <laughs> Which into is healthcare. The natural path <laughs> yeah, this, you right? know I met with the high school guidance counselor. They're like, you're going to go to Arizona for digital animation. You're going to come back and tour doing music and then by the way you're going to put all that on hold and go into healthcare right it's like they, no one does that um, but I started having migraines when I was 17 and averaged a little over 100 full-blown migraines per calendar year and the only reason I became a doctor was I couldn't find a good one or I couldn't find one that really knew how to navigate a complex case like me 
I went to 21 specialists over nine years just to get a diagnosis that no one knew what to do with it. Uh, it's a fancy name called the Chiari malformation. Um, but yeah, in those spaces, I was learning through all of this as I started. I, I met Jeff and I've, I've been involved in the plywood space um, for almost nine years and kept having these conversations like the intent and the desire and, and the, the belief to, to work and, and, and take care of people is high. But no matter what I do, I keep managing to end up stressed, fatigued, overwhelmed. And there's so many different factors to these spaces that you know a lot of folks don't realize right now the statistics are showing that about 91 to 92 percent of the healthcare related issues that we have are stress related. They're lifestyle, wow. you can manage them. So the tagline that we use um, at Thrive NeuroHealth when I'm working with patients is we foster improvements in physical, mental, emotional, and re and relational health for the purpose of spiritual well-being. Because okay. it's all integrated and in, in making sure that all of those spaces are healthy. All right. So I love that. So we're going to come back in just a minute and unpack that in a lot more detail. But I think it would be helpful if people knew a little bit more about your uh, just your personal story because it's sure. kind of it's not a it's a fascinating story. Uh, so Jerome will tell you he is an immigrant to the United States. I am. It either makes for a really bad Hallmark movie or maybe a good fictional story because it just sounds too crazy to be true. Yeah. Um, so tell us. Yeah, but I was born in South Africa. My parents, my brothers and I are the first people born outside of Zimbabwe in over 400 years, which when my parents were there was called Rhodesia. Um, but we were born in a rural part of South Africa called Benoni, uh, which is northeast. My dad moved us out of South Africa into Congo and Zaire. Uh, at the time, it was called Zaire, and now it's called the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, specifically to get a job at a foundry where he was a metalsmith and a blacksmith and a foundry worker so we could immigrate to the States. Um, and long story short, we ended up having to flee Zaire in January of 1990 uh, under blankets in the back of a taxi cab. We, uh, we brought over $100 in two suitcases. We landed in Knoxville, Tennessee in January of 1990 in the middle of the snow. My twin brother and I were seven. My older brother was nine. My dad was 35. My mom and my grandmother were, were with us. None of us had seen snow. Like it, it, was, it, was a, it was a wild experience. And that was what year? That was 1990. 90. Okay. Yeah, and then fast forward, we went to, you know, my brothers and I went to 11 different schools before we graduated high school, moved all over the Tri-Cities area, um, was run over by a car in Maryville, Tennessee. I mean, it was just a crazy experience growing up. And uh, my dad passed away when I was a freshman in high school at 43. Wow. Um, from congestive heart failure, the, the nature of a two-pack a day for 30, uh, for 30 years and working in a foundry, your lungs just kind of give up and so does your heart. Um, but yeah, my, my experience has been that it took us seven years to get our green cards. My dad was adamant about doing it legally. Uh, but when you're doing freelance foundry work, income and finances don't come in at a high rate. Uh, so it took us about seven years to pay a lawyer to get the paperwork done properly and go through the process. And about eight months after we were, uh, were awarded or became legal resident aliens, my dad passed away in November of 97. Wow. Yeah, so it's been quite the, uh, quite the interesting space. It very much, I didn't even know what a third culture kid was until recently where, you know, I found out, okay, we were raised in a very different world and demographic in Congo. My lived experience and memories of adolescence coming to northeast Tennessee in a city called Mohawk, going to a school named McDonald's and nobody having been raised in an international, especially international country with primarily people of a different color. So it was a really interesting experience being raised in Northeast Tennessee by a dad who spoke 13 languages. Your it father was, spoke 13 languages. Yeah, he, he fought in the Rhodesian Bush War for over 10 years uh, as frontline gunner. And the average life expectancy was about six to seven months. And he was just, he never graduated high school, but he knew nine tribal languages, uh, spoke Indibeli, Kosa, Swahili, Zulu, Afrikaans, Shona. I mean, all these 
crazy things and you'd look at him and think he's just you know he's he, he looked like a regular everyday tennessee mechanic until he started talking to you and you're like you're definitely not from around here yeah and if you guys were sitting here and you saw drum you would go you did what? Because you don't necessarily, you know, nobody's going to no, think that no. you just immigrated out of Africa, right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially, I mean, it's funny. I sit down and have conversations with folks and they'll ask, you know, I'm, I'm very open and very com- comfortable with having very tough conversations that are, are great to, you know, expand our awareness around different topics. And somebody will think, okay, we're, we're kind of in a closed container with everybody's lived experiences. And they'll go, well, what do you think about X, Y, and Z topic? And I go, well, you know, as a, a refugee kid from Africa, my experience might be a little bit different than somebody who's lived in this same sphere for the last three decades. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it ends up, uh, on one hand, I get to, my foundational verse for all the work that I do is Isaiah 58, which is to be a repair of the breach and to restore cities to dwell in. And that, I do that clinically. I do it through the content work. So it actually creates a really interesting opportunity to be disarming from an aesthetic, from just a visual piece of what people assume about me, but then being able to bring in different context and experience to something that people maybe aren't familiar with. Yeah, and I, I can appreciate it just a little bit. As I shared with you earlier when we were chatting, uh, my family and I just came back from Tanzania about a month ago where we went over uh, with an, a great organization, Care for AIDS, but yeah. you realize how radically different uh, all aspects of our culture are. It's profound. Uh, f- and so, wow, just the diversity of experiences you've had. It's just, profound, yeah. Just to get here. And then when you talk about some of the passions that you have with music and animation, yet you end up in a form of, of health care, yeah. uh, that's quite a journey in and of itself. It wasn't, you know, it was a, it was a, we joked around earlier, you know, necessity is some other invention. Yes. And I was in a situation where, my entire lived experience from immigration to changing schools to parents passing away to getting married at 21 and taking full guardianship of a 12-year-old, uh, which was my introduction to parenthood. My wife and I raised her younger brother. Every single scenario I got into was com- was fairly unsolicited but required quite a bit of innovation and, and, and design thinking and different ideas around, well, how am I going to navigate this because I definitely don't have the skill set for it. Um, wow. So it's been it's been very much a, I have a need I don't have a resource so either I need to find it or I need to make it um, and that's been the lived experience that that moved me into healthcare moved me into the content production that I'm working on now uh, with the Thrive Neurotheology work and and brain based enneagram work it's been all of these spaces going man it feels like there's there's something that needs to be made here yeah. but it doesn't exist so kind of entrepreneurship but from a health standpoint rather than a product standpoint so your personal struggle with the migraines motivated you to just kind of lean in couldn't find the solutions the treatment you were uh, really in need of elsewhere yeah. so talk a little bit more about that journey and i, I presume that's what uh, ultimately led you to atlanta as well school yeah. in atlanta absolutely unfortunately there's been you know a fair amount i joke around with folks that my life has consisted of a couple of things which was uh or a couple of constants which is change pain grief and god wow. <laughs> those have always kind of been i've, I've expected things to change and be inconsistent um but one of the the one of the providential pieces that was kind of serendipitous was i was already in atlanta with my wife uh, since 2005 when we got married uh, actually 2003 but 2005 when we got married and at the time that i decided to go back and, and pursue the doctorate and, and move into this space um investigated a lot of different options and realized okay it looks like the best avenue for me I had so many good experiences with traditional providers and alternative providers and every aspect of everything. Because when you're dealing with something pretty profound and complex, you'll go anywhere for an answer. 
Well, I, I basically tested out and, and was disqualified for everything in a traditional model because I was resistant to medication, and surgery was a very complicated thing. To do a, a decompression surgery for a Chiari patient is brain and spine surgery at the same time. Um, and I was recommended by the neurosurgeon to avoid it unless I was suicidal. Um, and in the past six years, I've gone back twice for that conversation because that kind of intensity of migraines, one of the things I had to figure out is if I want to be here long term and raise a family and be successful, then this is something that I may have to do because it's intense to work through that kind of pain. Yeah, we, um, you, we were talking uh, with the number of migraines mm -hmm. you can have. And you said you could have one every three days. You can't just check out. Uh, take a day off from work, right. uh, stop being a husband or a father. If it was an every now and uh, then thing, perhaps you could, but sure. not at that level of frequency. You just have to figure out how you're going to continue to function in the midst of that. Absolutely. And even in that space, it was, again, it was a case of inventing ways that you could creatively find ways to work through it because I was averaging over 100 migraines, full independent migraines per calendar year and headaches between. And I always tell folks headaches are more like bruises and migraines are like broken bones that somebody's actively squeezing. Uh, headaches that are bruises are not so tough, but the migraines are profound. So figuring out ways to navigate that. So I look at all of the space. We're in Atlanta. Our house dropped 68% in overall value <laughs> from where we had it. And we couldn't move to save our life because we were one of those small pocket of people that never missed a payment, had good credit, we were young, we were dedicated to keeping our word to the agreement of the house. And unfortunately that led us into a place where no one would help us. We couldn't qualify for a refinance, we couldn't qualify for a hardship, nobody would touch us until we said, well, we'll just give up on the house. So in this space, we're locked into the space of Norcross and I'm looking at the different schools in the country I know that the tradi traditional route is not that it isn't it isn't for me. It's just it didn't it didn't serve to create avenues for recovery for me. And the alternative community, you know, they were really good at health and wellness and wholeness, but had no idea how to deal with a complex case. So I'm in the purgatory between a traditional model that's great at triage and damage control, but doesn't do rehab to the same degree of wholeness, and then an alternative community that has no idea how to deal with complex cases. Yeah. So I said, what would it look like? for me to do rehab and comprehensive recovery and well, wholeness and wellness for really complex cases and bridge that gap and, and be in the middle of that divide. So I ended up enrolling in uh, chiropractic school at Life University of Marietta, got the doctorate in that. But during that time, concurrently with the school and also postgraduate, uh, ended up doing uh, about another 120 credits in functional neurology and advanced clinical neurology for practical cases. So combined those two degrees and said, what does it look like to, to try and help folks that are in similar situations or lived experiences as me? So let's let's talk about functional neurology and, and just maybe you can help us define what that really means. Sure. Uh, and practically, what does what should a leader know about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the easiest analogy that I give for folks is kind of like a personal trainer for your brain. There's uh, if you look at kind of a, an instrument analogy, traditional neurology looks at is there anything that's as far as the instrument is concerned, is it physically damaged, or is there anything missing, or is there anything that needs to be replaced or repaired? And in some rehab settings, you can go, okay, what does it look like to make sure that it's tuned properly? What does it make sure, look like to make sure that it's functioning well? And a lot of the times in my situations, people are coming in where structurally everything's checking out. The diagnostics look great. Everything's coming back in terms of their lab work clean, but they just feel terrible. And I explained to them, you know, you can take a fully, perfectly made instrument that is actually in tune hand it to somebody who doesn't know exactly how to play the song properly, and everything comes out sideways. 
you can take perfectly tuned instruments that are in great shape and you can put them in an orchestra and as soon as somebody hits the wrong note or plays out of time and sequence, it creates discord or disharmony. And a lot of the times in these situations, people are actually pretty healthy and they're in pretty good shape. It's a timing and a sequencing and a utilization piece. So how do you finesse that when it doesn't show up on a lab report or it doesn't show up on an advanced imaging or it doesn't show up in the traditional bedside exam? So one of the things that in, we end up looking at is some of the really foundational basics of eye movement and posture and coordinated movement in space and balance and all of our regular sensory systems and go, well, has anybody ever checked how dynamic your vision is in a functional way? Not just a structural uh, ophthalmology exam, but actually has anybody done a visual diagnostic to go, your eyes are moving properly as you're doing something like reading or as you're doing something like standing. Uh, so for instance, one of the demographics that I work with pretty heavily is nonverbal autism. And about 60% of my caseload is kids under 14 with either a brain injury or nonverbal autism. And there are three things that we will do 100% of the time, which also apply to leaders who are really healthy, um, which is we improve the quality of their appropriate eye contact, we improve the quality of appropriate posture, and then we make and maintain really good quality movement in space. Because the way the brain is built, no kid has learned how to form a fully fleshed out deductive reasoning and logic statement until they've learned to walk. You can't get cognition and actual intellect and intuition until you've learned the basics of how do I stand and how do I move in space. And most of the time I can tell you from the healthiest person to somebody who has been in a coma for four months and they have no wherewithal as to where they are in space uh, or where they're at or what time of day it is, if you improve eye contact, posture, and coordination of movement, everything improves because it's it's what predicates development of the brain in the first place so uh, well and i am all of a sudden incredibly self-conscious of my posture <laughs> and eye contact yeah so <laughs> I, I joke around it's a really simple way to distill that for anybody who's listening and going okay well what does that mean and what do i do with it uh, i tell everybody um you know about 50 percent of the people that come in to see me a hundred percent of their issues would resolve if they did six basic things which you can do every day at home uh, which is eat sleep rest, breathe, move, and eat. Sorry, eat, sleep, breathe, rest, move, eat. So when we're talking about that, it's, it's what's your nutrition look like? Are yeah. you breathing properly? Are you sleeping properly? Are you resting during the day, which is an intentional effort to disconnect, not necessarily fall asleep? You know, are you doing things like going for a walk? Are you understanding that this is a huge part of hydrating? How much water are you drinking during the day? You know, so six really basic things most people don't even realize you know, I, I see what happens to my plants when I forget to water them for two weeks, and I ask, well, when's the last time you had a full bottle of water or eight? And they go, well, it's been more than two weeks. And, and it's these simple, simple things of going, how does that impact my ability to give you a simple stat? Um, there was some research that came out uh, at the end of last year that shows if somebody's overall water volume for their own baseline drops by 2%, their cognition drops by 12%. Wow. So being able to tell people things like that that says, okay, you're really healthy. Overall, you look like you're doing pretty well. I can't necessarily add hours to your day, but what would it look like to increase margin so that you're more efficient? Well, are you doing things like protecting your sleep? Are you doing things like getting around and activating your body by moving and 
Do you even drink any water during the day? It's, it sounds like rock, like it's not rocket science, but honestly, if you look at most people and they go through those six basics and they did a personal audit or inventory, they're like, yeah, I really don't, I really don't pay attention to one or more of those. And changing a couple of those levers is profound how much it impacts uh, the experience physically, mentally, emotionally, all of those spaces come together. Do you have general guidelines that you would tell um, someone? Um, in other words, how much sleep would you recommend someone get? How much water would you suggest someone consume on a daily basis? I do. I do. From, um, from a sleep standpoint, it's, it's always recommended to get at least six hours. There's very, very few people, unless they're genetically predisposed to survive on a little, six hours is generally the minimum. But you want to do it in a 90-minute segment because that's what's called the circadian rhythm and how you actually refuel. So six, seven and a half, nine. But the key with sleep that most people don't realize is actually what time you go to bed, not, not necessarily what time you wake up um, because it's about sun exposure. There's an old statement that's really true in neuroscience, which is, Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man happy, healthy, and wise. It's because you need certain exposure to sunlight. The highest rates of depression and suicide in the world are all tied to areas that have more dark hours during waking hours than, than sunshine hours. So going to bed by 10 o'clock at the latest, if possible, is a much healthier idea. And then waking up at 5.30, then going to bed at midnight and waking up at 7.30. Mm. So bedtime by 10, at least six, if not seven and a half hours. Generally speaking, if you wake up feeling rested, your body's pretty intuitive. It'll know when to wake you up, but don't don't extend it too long and don't cut it too short because then we we, we out-navigate ourselves into a healthy space. Um, but from a hydration standpoint, easiest math is to take your own personal body, body weight, divide it by two, and drink that many ounces a day. That's so, Okay, that's good. That's yeah. exactly what I've been trying yeah. to do. So if you're late. 200 pounds, you're drinking 100 ounces of water. You know, I, I sound like a That's small... That's not a layup either, by the way. Not, you, you, you really do need to kind of focus. At least I do. You have to. And, you know, I'm, I, I don't sound it on this. Uh, I, I, get, I get told sometimes on the phone I sound, like a, I sound like a madam versus a guy. I don't have that deep baritone voice, but I'm actually 6'2 and a half, 275. I'm a big guy. So I have to drink a lot more That's water, a lot of water than other people. Um, but I can tell you conscientiously, it's a profound impact on my migraines and my rest and everything else. So sleep at least six hours, bed by 10 if possible. Uh, hydration, half your body weight in ounces. Uh, from a, an eating standpoint, you know, I always tell everybody, uh, there's there's so many ways that you could go with eating, but eating an anti-inflammatory diet, and you can Google anti-inflammatory mm -hmm. diets, yep. uh, will be the most advantageous for you. And you know, the, the great thing with eating is, is you can do elimination diets and go, I'm just gonna eat, if I can eat it, if I can pick it or kill it, I can eat it. That's a really good rule of thumb. Yeah. You can't unfortunately pick a Coke from a tree, and you can't kill candy bar right yeah. so just thinking through can i pick it or kill it i can eat it and just try it for 60 days and then reintroduce something your body is really intuitive if you if you have a bad experience with it it's acute food poisoning you don't have to be sick for two days you can just have you know you can have a, a an unpleasant experience in a bathroom trip and go my body wasn't fan, wasn't a fan of that yeah so anti-inflammatory diet something like whole 30 or or something that's easy to to follow is is a good idea uh, from the moving standpoint, you know, one of the stats that I tell everybody is there's some really good research around what's called blue zones. They mm -hmm. study people who live to be 100 or centenarians. The One of the only core common factors, and there's nine primary factors that they look at, um, one of the core might have been 11 actually, but the only one that's core common across the board, not, it, it's not nutrition, it's not exercise, it's social environments, it's a huge part of it. But the only core common denominator with people who live to be 100 is regular activity of daily movement 15 to 17,000 steps per day not heavy-duty exercise not running just 15 to 17,000 steps in a mobile movement-based environment 
so just getting out and walking and you know I tell people get a don't get a standing desk get a treadmill desk yeah. get a get a flat treadmill and tuck it under the, the 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 desk and put it in the closet you can get it for 300 bucks on Amazon they're cheap uh, it's a lot cheaper than a doctor's visit because you've got a high you know cholesterol rate um, but moving and if you don't move it all start with a thousand steps and add a thousand steps every month and eventually after a year you'll get up to 12 15,000 steps so you've got the eating, you've got the sleeping, you've got the hydrating, you've got the moving. Um, the other two that are really probably some of the biggest ones that people forget is the most profound one that I tell people is an immediate thing, which you can tell as I'm talking, I don't do a lot because I talk very quickly, uh, is you've got to take some deep breaths. Most people just honestly don't know how to breathe. And anybody who thinks about this, if they just take 60 seconds, hit a timer on the phone, close their eyes and take five to six deep breaths, Within one minute, you can have you can feel the actual physical reset. It's profound. It's why they say take a deep breath and count to ten when you get upset. It's why we teach people take a deep breath when you're in a space where you're trying to think through something. It's profound how few times people breathe properly, and if you don't get oxygen to your brain, you can't think clearly. So breathing is actually probably the most important piece out of the six basics because we're doing it the most consistently throughout the day. You can eliminate the other ones to a very to varying degrees, but you can only go a few minutes without a good quality breath before it's going to do some damage. So breathing is huge. And then the last one is rest. And rest is very different than sleep because rest is an active choice during waking hours. Sleep is an involuntary thing. You can't actually choose to go to sleep. You can choose to get into an environment that promotes sleep. But to actually fall asleep is actually when your brain switches off and it lets you go. So if any, for anybody who has trouble falling asleep, I raise both hands, right? Um, the time that you fall asleep is actually when you stop trying. But rest, you have to do it intentionally. You have to try to do that. So what does it look like to practice a Pomodoro technique at work? So if you're a leader and you're like, I can power through seven hours of straight time in front of a computer, I'm like, that's great. But the law of diminishing returns is a guarantee in that environment. Whereas the research shows... You sit down for 25 minutes, you set a Pomodoro timer, you take a five minute break, you walk, you hydrate, you take a couple of deep breaths, you give yourself a chance to rest, you step back in. Doing a five minute break every 30 minutes will be the same amount of breaks that you take during the day and you'll be profoundly more productive than trying to do two hours straight. This is a completely different environment. All right, so that, that was an incredible um, sort of a quick flyby on some really practical stuff. And I want to ask you about one more thing. Uh, neuroplasticity. Yes, sir. I, I know you know a lot about this. Um, and I don't know a lot, but I, I have uh, started to just kind of lean into it a little bit. And I even have these little apps you can get that are supposed to almost like be workouts for your brain. Sure. Good or bad, believe in that. Uh, I do. I think, you know, not everything, and, and as with any market that has a certain degree of kind of fad nature to it, it's all dependent on the practitioners and the folks that are putting it together. But, you know, my vote is always if you're doing anything to invite novel or new or, or you know, kind of opportune spaces to give your brain a chance to do something different, novelty is always good for the brain. Complacency and, and familiarity breed contempt if your brain doesn't have something new to learn. So apps like Lumosity or Brain EQ or, yep. you know, all of these other spaces are really, you know, you can do Headspace, you can do Calm, you can do tons of different activation-based apps or rest-based apps, something that says, okay, I'm going to change the landscape. And it's not really that much different than, you know, the generations before us that were like, this is my Sunday crossword puzzle. You know, this is a Sudoku. It's just more advanced. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in my experience, the only reason 
that I got into the field of functional neurology and I work with the patients that I work with is I had to believe that there was something outside of the fixed environment of you are what you are and that's all you can do. You can't change. Because if I couldn't change and I couldn't pursue a future with less migraines, then what's the point of being here? Because that's not a future I can do. I can't do 100 migraines per year for the next 40 years. I'm just, that transparently, that's, that's a very, very tough thing to do. Good support structure is great. All of those things are amazing. But giving somebody the hope and the opportunity to connect with the idea that you're not in a stuck, fixed, mechanical kind of environment, you have the capacity to change. It's not only liberating, it's inspiring, and it's something that gives you a chance to connect with something that, that means that there's progress, that you can set a healthier expectation. You know, and I've worked with 75-year-old stroke patients that three years prior to coming and seeing me had a hemorrhagic stroke or a really catastrophic stroke, significant enough to delete the map for the left side of their body. When they come in, they're in a wheelchair and they don't know where the left side of their body is. It's called a hemi-neglect. And within six weeks, after 110 very intense hours of care, because I do a one-hour session, we did 110 of them in six weeks, he is able to walk independently using a walker under his own weight. Wow. At 75, three years post-stroke. That's not supposed to be possible. Yeah. So neuroplasticity for me is this conversation, whether I'm in the healthiest shape possible or I'm a 75-year-old stroke patient that can't find the left side of my body. I think it's more along the lines of having a conversation about let's start with I'm going to assume it's possible until my body tells me otherwise. But let's pursue that rather than saying, well, there's no point in starting. It's not going to happen anyways. That's a very different idea when you realize your body's pretty capable of change pretty quickly. How is your own... Um personal health is is it you feel like you're making progress because you've got a lot on you you got a family you got a business you've got uh patients and and clients that are are dependent upon you yeah so how are you progressing uh, i appreciate the question it's actually you know this has been the sum total of the nine-year arc since i sat down with jeff at a plywood retreat <laughs> nine okay. years ago and my application said i want to help people avoid burnout and what does that look like? And how that how that has evolved and changed and how, you know, I have a, a saying that I, I believe um, or kind of something that drives me that I believe applies to everybody, which is oftentimes we're most gifted at providing for other people what we lack in our own space or our own life. And mine was self-care and helping people to avoid burnout because I wasn't great at self-care and I was burned out with the spaces that I'm in. So over the past couple of years, you know, a couple of bullet points that have trended into the space that I'm in now, which is far healthier than it's ever been is I was the executive director of a clinic system in two states, over 55 employees at 31, traveling seven to eight flights a month. Uh, I, I was at home the, the last and only one week of my wife's third trimester just so that I could be there when my son was born. Like I was burning the midnight oil at both ends. Mm. Um, and I was still averaging those migraines. And for me, it had to be, what does it look like to actually transition out of a very healthy salary in a very stable space um, into private practice and, and be able to manage my own time better? Then start reducing my availability, get into spaces where I could be healthier in every aspect. And, you know, long story short, it's gotten into a space where I've gone from averaging over 100 migraines a year for 17 years uh, to less than 40. And that 40 migraines a year may sound like a lot to somebody, uh, but when you go from 115 to 40, that's a that's great. That's progress. a much better year. <laughs> yeah, and I'm still in. You know, I tell people all the all the time. Every day I wake up, I'm a patient first and a doctor second. So I have to be conscientious of these things that I'm telling other people and implement them myself, because I would like to get to a place that I imagine is possible. I haven't had it as a lived experience as an adult because my first migraine was when I was 17. But I believe in a year where I'm going to have zero migraines. 
So that I have to keep constantly pursuing that and being conscientious of what are my boundaries? Am I being, uh, am I moving in integrity and in what I'm communicating to other people is necessary to do that? Uh, and, and constantly iterating and, and adjusting. And like you guys talk about in your, your five-step process of being able to launch an idea, am I constantly cycling through that in my own yeah. self-care and in my own pursuit of being the healthiest version of myself? Because I'm really good at facilitating it for other people, but I can't go to bed at night and say, well, I left mine, uh, you know, off the radar for the day, I'll get to it tomorrow. I have to iterate and I have to validate what's working and what's not working and constantly keep pursuing a better outcome. You want to help people, you do that through um, obviously your your clinic, just one-on-one, but you share with me the today's a big milestone day because yeah. you've been working on a project and uh, it's a book it and you got a lot of that buttoned up today. Tell us that story and tell us what's the book about? What's the sure. vision behind the book? Yeah. It's uh, it is interesting to say out loud because it's it's such a you, say it. yeah you, you work it. it I yeah. I have finished a the first brain based model of the enneagram, uh, so the enneagram is obviously a conversation that a lot of people are familiar with at at the moment. But for me, both clinically and personally and professionally, a lot of the spaces that I'm in, people have a great subjective or kind of, you know, anecdotal information about. But being able to explain it and validate it and understand it and objectively measure it and go back and go, is it actually better? Like the validation piece, which I think is step four for you guys, is one of those things where it's like, okay, but how do I know that what I know is even making a difference? So I have a friend of mine who, his name is Sean Champ Smith, who uh, is is both an incredible guy and the bane of my existence because he introduced this to me over six years ago while I'm in the process of finishing a doctorate, doing a 90-hour week. And he's like, I think you really need to read on this. I'm telling you, it just feels God-led. It feels spirit-led, and you need to do this. And I was like, I don't have time for this. And when I say (laughs) that, I'm not being cute about it. I actually don't. But he wouldn't leave me alone about it. Long story short, I ended up reading, uh, listening to an audio book had this, what I joke around as a matrix kind of epiphany moment. I'm hearing it and I go, well, this sounds a lot like basic functional neurology and neurochemistry. So I went and got a book, put the book in front of me. And as soon as I opened the book and saw the diagram and kind of the symbology of what it looks like in terms of the structure, I was like, I think this is upside down. And I turned it 180 degrees and over the course of the next four hours, mapped out basic neurology and brain anatomy on top of the Enneagram. And for the last six years, I've been trying to take that initial just completely almost supernatural experience and go, how do I explain this? How do I unpack it? And how do I make it work? So over the last couple of years, I've been working on uh, a different business called Thrive Neurotheology, which is content and publishing and, and production around practical resources for people to use things like this. And the tagline of the business is where self-care meets neuroscience and practical application. So what I'm doing with the book right now is it's created a completely new scoring methodology to show people, okay, instead of asking the question, I'll ask you, let's see if we'll take an informal poll here because I haven't asked you. What's the number one question that somebody normally asks you when they talk about the Enneagram? What, um, there's like a number, yeah. what number are you? Yeah, see, so even with your your level of prowess and, and understanding well, well, about it, everybody knows that the first question <laughs> that somebody's going to ask is what number are you? And, I, and uh, Jerome and I were talking about this. I'm a rookie, but I'm, I showed in my calendar, I'm going to an Enneagram conference with my wife yeah. in two weeks. So. Which is great. It's, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, so, I'm so amazed at how much of a standard part of the cultural conversation it's becoming. But I always joke with everybody and I go, Man, I, I don't think I want to live in a world where I'm defined by a single number. I just don't think that that's the way I was built. And I always joke around with people who, you know, regardless of your kind of ethos and your background, my history is as, as a Judeo-Christian. But I said, if I'm made in the image of God, what number is God? 
well, clearly all of them, right? Yeah. So if that's the case, I'm just asking these questions and, you know, trying to understand step one of your guys' process of, hold on a second. If I'm if 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 it's possible for me to do this, am I actually in a nine piece band, but I'm only playing one instrument, or I only think I'm playing one instrument? Am I in a band that's got nine vocalists and only one person singing, and I don't realize that there's eight other opportunities here? So what I started doing with the brain based model was overlaying the anatomy and understanding how that works, and going, look, if you realize that you're actually not a personality type, you're a whole identity. You're working in all nine numbers simultaneously, and I can prove it to you through neuroscience, and I can give you practical applications on what to do with that knowledge. Would it be helpful to realize that by asking the question, what number are you, statistically, you're only talking about 15% of your entire identity? Mm. And am I going to function in the world as a really healthy, complete, whole person by only utilizing 15% of my resources? I don't think that that's the most effective way to be healthy. So showing people not only why your highest numbers show up that way, but actually why your lowest numbers are where you hemorrhage resources faster than anywhere else because of the parts that you're avoiding in order to survive through the basic process of becoming an adult. Mm. So trying to unpack all of that and utilize all of the existing language everybody's familiar with, but... To use a clinical example, it's kind of like going from an X-ray to an MRI and then an MRI to a functional MRI. The Enneagram took personality typologies and took it from an X-ray to an MRI, really dynamic, but it's not functional, it's not live, it's static. I wanna be able to make it dynamic that says, man, you are way more beautifully and complicated and, and more beautifully made than you think, but here's the ways to understand it in a really simple, digestible way. Uh, so the book unpacks all of that and shows people how to actually update their information, walk it out, practically apply it, and then check year over year if they're making progress. Do you think the book is going to um, shift the trajectory of your overall practice in time? It is. And, you know, interestingly enough, this has been uh, the thing that my wife and I have been joking around about. Uh, I feel like God has kind of drugged me kicking it. People a lot of times call talk about a calling. I never really got a calling. I got a pulling. Yeah. Right. I, I, I've been quintessentially pulled and dragged into or drug into every situation that I've walked into. I didn't anticipate going into healthcare or working on this content. But, you know, one of the interesting things, so if, if I look at the synergy and kind of the, the amalgamation and the aggregation of everything that's happened over the last 10 years, what it's really gotten me into at this point is looking at being able to provide really legitimate resources for people to be healthy physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. I can't see everybody. I can't treat everybody. I can't do one-on-ones with everybody, but giving somebody a resource to go, I mean, I had no idea the consistent argument I keep having with my spouse is tied to a trigger that was formed when I was in my adolescence. And here's a practical way to change that. Is a practical way to be healthier in all of these different spaces. So to answer your question, it's actually been one of the biggest transitions to go. I think what I'm being moved into at this time and what's really been the big transition over a three-year arc that's starting to happen now more and more is moving into situations where my ratio of being a clinician to being a content creator is starting to flip. Uh, it's been m far more so almost a 90-10 ratio of, of clinical work as a doctor and then 10% as a content creator and a, a trainer and a, a speaker and a teacher to what does it look like to, to change that equation? Because when I do all of these other spaces, I, I don't trigger migraines the same way. Because for what it's worth, so people understand, I have a hernia in my brain where part of my brain came through my skull that's hanging out down behind my neck. So I have compression with my particular type of hernia on all four sides of my brainstem. If I'm upright, I don't compress anything. As soon as I look down, 
or I change my head position, I either rotate a little bit or I bend my chin towards my chest, I kink the hose pipe. Mm-hmm. And it creates profound, literal structure. I've got a, I've got a plumbing and a, 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 a traffic jam issue. Well, the problem is I'm 6'2", and everybody I work on is shorter than me. So every time that I do really intense work for an extended period of time and I see intense patients that require a profound amount of attention and intention, uh, attention and intention, um, it's consequential. And I love to do the work with them. It's what I was put on the planet for. But at the same time, it's, it's triggering more and more of my own health complaints. So looking at how can I still leverage all of the things that I've walked through over the last 35 years, I'm 36 now, walk through all of these things to go, how do I consolidate that in, and package it into something that's meaningful and useful for people? Because uh, I was joking and reading some of the content that you guys have put out, and, and one of the things that I thought was funny, because I don't have any experience to the contrary of this, is make sure what you're working on is something that you've lived through. Make sure something that you're working on is relevant to you as well. And I was like, I have no idea how to make anything that isn't connected to my yeah. experience, because it's been the hardest part of, of trying to stay above ground is, how do I become the healthier version of myself? Even to the point that I did 515 credits of schooling to take care of people, and now I'm in a situation where in order to be the healthiest version of myself, I'm having to decrease my primary skill set, which for the way that I'm wired is actually a very challenging thing to do because I'm, I'm much more, my, I talk about it as efficiencies rather than types. I'm most efficient in the nature of a two-space, which is a nurturer, it's a helper, it's somebody who wants to be a caretaker. Um, and for me to value my own health over the people that I'm serving and say I'm going to take care of myself and do self-care more than treating people is actually completely counterintuitive to the way that I'm wired. So it's been a very interesting transition to start to work towards making this my primary goal moving forward for the next however long I'm on the planet. But still, uh, definitely I, w- I won't stop being in a, in a treatment in a clinical space. But at the moment, um, I'm having to reconcile that I'm going to have to decrease my availability because it's just too consequential to my own health. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, there's a question I really want to ask. I'm a huge believer um, that we can experience so much more growth if we'll just sort of humble ourselves, reach out, and in whatever area of life it is, we get a coach, we get a mentor, we get a trainer, we get somebody that just has um, subject matter expertise or uh, life experiences that we don't have, and, and they can help us. Absolutely. So if we've got somebody that's listening and they're dealing with an issue, whether it's stress, they've got migraines, uh, something is not healthy. They just know they're not, um, they're, they're, they're struggling to sleep, whatever it may be. What's a practical step that you would suggest they take? Yeah, I think you, you just hit the nail on the head in terms of getting a relationship connection with somebody that they can be in a space for some degree of sounding board of mentorship. You know, I, because of the, the type of patients that I work with, an ancillary service that I almost always offer as a complimentary piece is, is to get really good quality counseling. All of us in, in each of our respective spaces, whether it's our five-year-old was run over by a dump truck or we've had a stroke or we're just tired as CEOs and, and workers and people in spaces trying to create new ideas, wherever we're at, everybody's got a history of things that they need to process and work through. Because for what it's worth to give you a stat that makes sense to this, 95 to 97% of our daily process, our thoughts, our emotions, our physical actions are subconscious. So only 3 to 5% of what we experience on a daily basis actually hits a conscious level. That means 95 to 97% of our employees are work, working on autopilot. So if we are really, really managing the 3 to 5% of leadership that's navigating the entire company, it's great for them to be healthy. 
But if you don't intentionally pursue an audit and an inventory of the 95 to 97% of your employees that are downstream, you have a high probability of reproducing really unhealthy habits if you haven't done an audit, just a regular performance review. So when you're able to connect with somebody who's a licensed professional counselor, a spiritual director, a life coach, or a mentor, one of the biggest things that I recommend for the way that the brain works is find somebody that you don't have an intimate connection with. Find somebody that you don't have a high degree of personal connection with. Because no matter how impartial you can be and how impartial they can be, your subconscious system is constantly monitoring what's the safest answer. What did they mean by the way that they phrased that? We're constantly working through defense mechanisms and survival mechanisms we are completely unaware of. But if you go into an unmitigated, completely safe space with an impartial party where you know you can be completely transparent and it is a safe container for you to be able to process, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be stressed. It doesn't mean that you have to be in a space where you are dealing with profound emotions emotional, mental, or physical health challenges. You can be in a fairly healthy state of being as far as you understand. But to be able to sit in a place with somebody who's professionally trained to pull out those questions about the things that you haven't considered and bring your attention to the things you normally don't pay attention to, that's just a really healthy way to go. And when's the last time I sat down with the department that deals with emotional stress? When's the last time I sat down with a leadership that's saying, how do I handle my anxiety? Because I've never really processed through that. What's, my, what's the health and the quality of my thoughts and my emotions? And what is it like when I'm sitting on the other side of me, to quote Andy Stanley, after I've gotten upset and what those spaces were? Um, so, yeah, so anybody that's listening to this space, I, I say more than anything, find a, and a really good way to do it is post and start asking people, hey, I'm, I'm looking at getting a personal trainer for my mental health or my emotional health, or I'm looking to connect with somebody that I can, I can just make sure I'm the healthiest version of myself. I think oftentimes not to make it too long-winded here and forgive me, but I think, I think a lot of times, especially in my space as a clinician, people are waiting until there is something that needs to be recovered or rehabbed. The, the proactive nature of doing these things, especially in mental and emotional health, if I ask anybody who's listening right now, if I asked you to outline for me what you thought would make your life healthier from a physical standpoint, what could you do to improve your physical health? Most people could pretty quickly list off something. But I said, if you wanted to make sure that your real estate that deals with emotional and mental health is as good as it can be, what are you doing to actively ensure that that's happening? Or do you even know what the state of your emotional and mental health is? Most people have never really thought about that. So moving it into being the healthiest version of myself requires me to be proactive about these things, I think is a healthy option as well. You know, there's so many areas of, of um of life where you can get coaching and there's no stigma associated with it. But there can be a stigma uh, when it comes to mental health. And, and I, I just think we need to kind of move beyond that. So yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. So if I know there are people, they've been listening, they're just fascinated, uh, they're intrigued, or maybe they're even desperate for more help. If sure. they want to connect with you, how can they do that? Point people to the, 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 the easiest way to get in touch with you, Jerome. Yeah, the easiest way is actually drjerome.com. Okay. So uh, surprisingly enough, that URL was not too hard to get. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just drjerome.com. So drjerome.com. And that'll take you to both the Thrive Neuro Health and the Thrive Neuro Theology for both the clinical space and then also the content uh, and creation space. So the book that you've just started to wrap up, when will that hit the market? And can people just go look on uh, Amazon or what should they do? Yeah, it will actually be, it's in the process of being approved at the moment. So by the time the podcast is edited and up, you could probably look for Whole Identity, 
um, or, or you can Google brain-based Enneagram. Uh, either one of those. Uh, the funny thing is if you Google brain-based Enneagram right now, three total results come up on Google. So it's either a very novel idea that will work or I'm completely out of my mind. But uh, it'll be on Amazon shortly. And if you can't remember any of that, just go to drjerome.com and it'll be on the landing page. Uh, this has been fascinating. Well, let me first of all say thanks for coming and just being transparent about your own story, even the struggles that you've uh, experienced and how they've shaped you and how they've really sort of guided you into um, what's your calling right now. Uh, and thanks for just, just sharing some of these concepts that I think so many of our listeners are going to, they're going to need to figure out what it means for them. And, and perhaps you've just struck a nerve with a challenge or a struggle they're going through too. So yeah, it's, it's such a pleasure and such a gift. And I would just leave everybody who's listening with a statement that is kind of my motto for everything that I'm doing, which is it's far less about, uh, it's, it's less about trying to, forgive me, I just said that backwards. It's not about being less broken. It's about being more whole. So just being motivated by saying, how do I, how do I structure my space around being that? So I appreciate the opportunity to share that with everybody. Yep. And I think it's, it's just a, um, another reminder that we, we're, we're never stuck. You know, you you can keep growing. You can keep moving beyond what may feel like circumstances that are holding you back. Absolutely. And I think your story is a great testament to that. So, Jerome, thank Thank you. Thank you so much, David. And so for you listeners out there, thank you again for just uh, giving the time to to listen to the podcast. Encourage you just to uh, tell somebody else about it. Share it with somebody. Show them how they can uh, subscribe as well. Uh, But we're honored that you you do this with us. You can uh, uh, just continue to check out the Launch University website as well if you want to see some shows notes or other resources that might be out there Uh, until next time uh, thanks for joining us thanks for listening to the launch university podcast we hope it's helped you move from go-getter to difference maker be sure to subscribe on itunes and leave a review for more helpful resources visit launchuniversity.com